from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Over Informed on IPM. Hey there, podcast listeners. This is one of many in a series of episodes about SWD research, spotted wing drosophila. If you have not listened to my previous episodes on SWD monitoring, I recommend listening to those before diving into this one. There's a ton of really interesting work going on comparing and contrasting the biology and behavior of this invasive drosophilid to its native cousins. It's a pretty big family. You might be familiar with Drosophila melanogaster. If you've ever studied genetics, you may also be personally familiar with a slew of Drosophila species that make their way into your kitchen from time to time. These are more or less fruit flies. You know them, you love them. Some of the stuff uh, that we'll cover today is a little less applicable for right now, but I hope to bring some perspective as to why finding a more useful monitoring tool for this pest is so challenging and maybe get you excited about some pest management approaches for the future. Um, a disclaimer that I will skim very shallowly across the top of some pretty deep topics, so a preemptive apology if I leave anyone hanging. So we know that the lures that we use for monitoring SWD are essentially fermentation odors. The commercial lures we discussed in previous episodes, the, the trace and the sentry lures, the odor components of these lures were actually based on odors from wine and vinegar. But many of these odor compounds are shared with odor components from yeasts. You might ask yourself, why are these flies so hot and bothered over yeast if they lay their eggs in ripe and ripening fruit? What, what gives? Well, come to find out all of these so-called fruit flies are actually much more motivated by the yeasts that live on the fruit than the fruit itself. Don't get me wrong. They love the sugars in the fruit, but those sugars also feed the yeasts and the yeasts are a good source of protein. The flies are into that. So they're into the odors we put into the traps and therefore we can catch and drown them and have more information about what's going on in our fruit plots. For a much better explanation, I reached out to someone who knows a lot more about SWD yeast interactions. This is Kelly Hamby. I'm an extension specialist and assistant professor at the University of Maryland. What we know about Drosophila in general and yeast and what we think we know about them is that they seem really important for their development. Originally, what we thought was the Drosophila suzukii, since it has this different feeding strategy of going for fresh fruit, that it was going to be less reliant on protein and therefore less reliant on yeast, which are basically little concentrated packets of protein when you think about relative to the sugars and the carbohydrates that you find in fruit, right? But it turns out that protein is still pretty important for Suzuki-i, although they don't need quite as much as some of these other Drosophila do. They do have a very similar association with yeast as other Drosophila Here's the point where I would have liked to drop in and explain the difference between yeasts and molds and kind of fit them into the general fungal scheme of things. And I'll be honest with you, taxonomy in this area will, will get you twisted real quick. Well, if at least I find it completely disorienting. What you absolutely need to know is that there are 
all sorts of yeasts and molds living on the surface of just about everything. Plants generally have a whole bunch of fungal pathogens that actually have mechanisms for growing inside plant tissue. But here we're kind of just talking about the benign species of fungi just living their best lives out on the surface of plant tissues. Sometimes that plant surface is covered with all sorts of different kinds of species of fungi all putting out their own smells. Uh, sometimes there's a dominant species that has outcompeted the rest because it's better at handling certain stressors like heat or desiccation or the alcohols associated with rotting fruit. This gets really interesting because Drosophila melanogaster has this long history of association with alcohol production and therefore a long history of associations with us humans. We're, we're always fermenting something. Um, it was thought that there might be a weaker association with fermentation odors for Suzukii, the invasive species, because she lays her eggs in ripe fruit and doesn't really need to wait until that fruit breaks down and rots the way Melanogaster has to wait for the fruit to break down and rot before she can lay her eggs in, in that stuff. Apparently, they aren't, aren't all that different when it comes to associations with these surface-dwelling microbes. But you could, if you were to boil it down to something simple, yeast and flies, they're friends, and the yeast, because they have these huge cells, need insects to move them to fruit so that they can get the sugars. Yeast cells are not found in the air like mold cells are. It's thought that they really can't get from point A to point B without an insect carrying them. So there's probably an, there's an advantage to the yeast to be attractive to an insect so that they'll carry them. And one of the things that we don't know about that particular interaction with the yeast and the flies is whether that yeast that you're finding is really something that they specifically want that one or whether it's a yeast that happens to be really competitive and available to them. So they'll take whatever they can get and they go for what is the most common, right? So the species that we find most is Hensenia spora uvarum, and that is actually a really important yeast also for doing wine fermentations. So a lot of people use that species to start wine fermentations because it outcompetes these other yeasts that they don't want that cause off flavors in the wine. So it's kind of a cool species of yeast. It's super competitive. It likes to get into fruit early and it goes for the glucose in the fruit. So these are simple sugars. And once it's consumed all of the simple sugars, other species of yeast come in later and those ones are more alcohol tolerant, and that's where you're really getting the further fermentation. So originally, we really thought, hey, this is cool. This yeast species is a yeast species that basically has the same kind of habitat as the flies, where it's going for really early fermentations rather than later stage, like other Drosophila. And one of the reasons we're really interested in this is because if these yeasts are attractive to flies, they could be used for monitoring traps, particularly when we think about those fermentation-based lures that we've been using, we attract all different kinds of flies and basically any insect that likes rotting fruit will go into those traps. So we were hoping to develop something that was more specific for Drosophila suzukii. We were working with a lot of chemical ecologists and people that were interested in trying to figure out what specific compounds in these yeast were attracting the flies. So did you find any difference in the attraction of flies to the, uh, the different yeast species that you study? <laughs> yeah, we did say that there are differences in their attraction between the different fly species um, and that yeast, different yeasts produce different smells also. So they're able to distinguish different yeasts. Oh, cool. Um, um, from, from your personal experience, like your, your own nose, do you think that H. smells different than like regular baker's yeast? 
Oh yeah, it's interesting. I don't. Well, you're you don't actively go around trying to smell use, but my lab sometimes, <laughs> especially you walk into it and you're like, whoa, this is a smell. Um, but the different yeast species, not only do they smell different, they smell different depending on how old they are. So a lot of them go from having a kind of fruity smell that's not so ple- that's pretty pleasant to um, more of a dirty sock smell as they age. <laughs> Gross. So during our conversation, Kelly mentioned several practical applications that her lab and many others are working out based on what we know about yeast-fly interactions. I'm going to drop in on a few folks putting this information to work, starting with a chemical ecologist. My name is Cesar rodriguez Saona, Extension Specialist in Blueberry and Cranberry IPM at Rutgers University. Insects rely a lot on, on chemicals for communication. Uh, chemical ecology studies what those chemicals are and what role they play in the type of communications that the insects have. So we, we try to exploit that kind of communication uh, for pest management. Most of the, the, the applications with chemical ecology has been done to develop uh, monitoring tools, like develop attractants. But also we want to use some of these chemicals not, not just monitor an insect, but also to uh, see if we can control them. Opportunities have been made, like for example, with sex hormones to develop mating disruption. We're also working towards um, attract and kill approaches. And also we can combine different chemicals uh, that work differently, like attractants and repellents in uh, approaches like the push-pull. Manipulating insect behavior uh, can be challenging, especially because insect behavior takes a lot of different steps. And uh, throughout those steps, they, the insects use different chemicals. So trying to manipulate uh, different behaviors can be challenging in nature. And I, as I said, you know, in many cases, they are context dependent. Cesar has studied the chemical ecology of many pest insects, including SWD. He and I had a much longer conversation about some of the challenges we face in manipulating SWD in the field, and that might need to be a whole other episode unto itself. But long story short, SWD is a case study in the challenges he just mentioned. Our allures are regularly outcompeted by the real thing as we see the numbers of flies in our traps change when there's lots of ripe fruit in the field. Also, the behavior we're trying to manipulate is egg-laying, which is stimulated by a whole different set of cues than finding food, which is stimulated by these yeast-associated odors in our lures. What we found out so far in attempting mass trapping of SWD, we've learned that we can manipulate where SWD lays her eggs, but it tends to be in plants where we put our lures. This is a phenomenon we've talked about before. Um, For example, plum curculio attacking apple where managers were targeting chemical management to trap trees, where aggregations were created with pheromones. Yeah, so I'm, I'm also like, I'm writing a paper right now with the results that we have uh, in blueberries. So I'm calling it like a trap bush, of course, because it's not a tree, but it's the same concept, baiting the bush and see whether you can aggregate the adults
Stay tuned for more in terms of SWD behavioral manipulations. There's lots of interesting stuff coming from applied chemical ecologists um, that might be useful in keeping SWD infestations at bay, particularly in the early weeks of blueberry crops. For something even further out into the future, I touched base with my old friend Antoine Ebrio, who had been investigating methods of using RNAi for SWD management in Joanna Chu's lab at UC Davis. Check out her website at clocklab.org for some very cool stuff about circadian seasonal rhythms in insects. When Antoine and I spoke in the early months of 2020, he was just starting a new gig with a new startup company working on ways to use yeasts to deliver this brand new kind of biopesticide to its target. Is it going to be proprietary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I can talk about the broad idea. Uh, I'm trying to develop the biopesticide. I don't know if you remember about the... So in a nutshell, the Chew Lab had been investigating RNAi or RNA interference as a potential mechanism for managing SWD. A very rudimentary explanation for what's going on here. Scientists identify important genes for SWD success. They produce a tiny piece of double-stranded RNA that would snip out that important function. Here they were actually looking at important gut functions in the flies. That fly would ideally consume that double-stranded RNA, which snips out that gut function, and the fly would not thrive or it would die because the gut function was disabled. Coincidentally, these dsRNA, the double-stranded RNA, are produced by growing them in yeast back to that later, but this approach can be extremely selective, meaning that it would only affect SWD and no other species. However, RNA is pretty darn ephemeral. It's just a string of nucleic acids after all, and not something that would last too long on its own. Not an ideal active ingredient if you're interested in a long residual efficacy. Yeah, so, so basically the, the concept of, uh, of this approach is that RNAi have been used uh, for pest management, but the drawback is that it's not stable in the field and it's really hard to deliver it to the pest. Uh, so the idea of uh, using the yeast to produce it, and since there is this mutualism between insect and yeast, because the yeast needs the insect to be spread in the environment, and the insect needs the yeast because it's part of their diet. Uh, so during the evolution, yeast have been emitting like volatile compounds so we're actually uh, relying on that uh, to try to enhance the attractiveness, to use the, the, the yeast that's gonna be uh, eaten by the insect. And if you look at the stuff that Kelly's doing, it sounds like there is some specificity. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, we can even think about to engineer uh, other species of yeast, because for now, we just tried on Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the basic yeast, like the, the baker yeast or the brewer yeast. Uh, but yeah, basically, maybe find like pick specific species like to target a specific insect. So some pretty cool stuff, but certainly not ready for application. Let's wrap up with one more potential application that might be ready for adoption now. If these flies are attracted to yeast on the fruit, more so than the fruit itself, can we make the fruit less attractive to the flies by reducing the amount of yeast on the surface? Well, yes, we can. 
I talked to Rufus Isaacs of Michigan State University for more on what they have found using crop sanitizers to clean up yeast on blueberries to do just this. And last year we tested Jet Ag, which is one of them. Um, another one called Sporquel. We did find reduced infestation. It's nothing like a chemical broad spectrum insecticide is going to achieve, but you know, 20, 30, maybe 40% reduction, which is potentially part of the overall tactics for trying to get this best controlled. It's interesting with this insect, in our trials, we're often looking at like, well, what level of infestation did we have? Is it significantly lower as a way to measure success? But given the way that we're managing it, if you could, if you could delay the need for a first you know, broad spectrum insecticide by a week, that's, that's really significant, both environmentally, economically. So yeah, I could understand that, that approach of just trying to stop the, the big ramp up in their population. Uh, one of them, I think Jet Ag actually has on its label that it's, it can be used as a fungicide. So some farmers have been using it in their spray tanks in the harvest time of the season for like fruit rots and things that they might be trying to control on the disease side. So knowing that it might give you a little bit of benefit for SWD is, is helpful. Do you, do you have any ideas or do you know if anybody's looked into this as to how much benefit you might get on the uh, like post-harvest end of things? That if you're applying crop sanitizers, mm -hmm. would that make your shelf stability longer? Has anybody looked at that? I know that there's farmers that have been trying to do that. We've, we tried a little bit of that last year and didn't, I don't think the trial worked out really well for looking at post-harvest methods. But like I said, some of the some of the farmers are just really happy with what it's done for their um, fruit rot quality, and that um, that's related to them keeping the fruit healthy and looking good and marketable after harvest. Let's jump back to Kelly for more on the microbes that live on fruit in the field and potential for pest status of the fly as well as other plant pathogens. So yeast themselves are not pathogenic and not of concern, but we have been isolating filamentous fungi or molds off of Drosophila suzukii as well. Some of those molds are things that are actually pathogens. These two organisms are interacting and whether the adults are interacting with the spores possible that since spider wings been introduced, we're having slightly different pathogen pressure and pressure from different types of pathogens. In Maryland, we've been seeing a lot more cladosporium, and we're not sure whether we're seeing more cladosporium because we actually had a plant pathologist get hired who started looking for it, or whether we started seeing more cladosporium because spider wing drosophila is causing wounds, and cladosporium is clearly facilitated by wounds. Um, and in the pick your own settings that we're working in, a lot of times the molds are actually much more obvious and much more of a problem for consumers. And of course they can take over a whole punnet. So having that fungal control is also really important. Right, so we covered a whole lot of ground in this one, but there's a lot of potential for all of these ideas to come together at some time in the future. For right now, I think I'm convinced that a foliar application of a crop sanitizer might be worth considering. Rufus mentioned jet ag and spore quell. 
but there are other sanitizers that are registered for use on fruit crops as a foliar application. So check those labels if this is right for you. It might buy you a week or so um, during blueberry harvest before you initiate SWD sprays. And it might also clean up some molds and other fungal pathogens that might be lurking out in the field too. Something to think about. So thank you so much to Kelly Hamby at University of Maryland, Cesar Rodriguez-Sayona at Rutgers University, Antoine Abrio and Joanna Chu at UC Davis, and Rufus Isaacs at Michigan State University. Oh, and of course, a big thanks to Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music. Informed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu.